Well, I think the core philosophy was true. used to say the taste of the roast is affected by the presence of the host. And his presence in the dwarf house for almost 30 years before he even created Chick-fil-A rooted him in a philosophy of engaging not only with his team members and knowing them and supporting them, but also engaging personally with customers. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Fort Capital is a real estate investment firm based in Fort Worth, Texas, with a track record of transacting more than $1.6 billion in assets throughout Texas, Tennessee, and Florida. The team over at Fort is currently looking to acquire Class B industrial deals between $15 and $100 million throughout Texas, Florida, Tennessee, and now North Carolina and South Carolina. To learn more about Fort Capital, visit www.fortcapitallp.com. Steve, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to talk today. Thank you, Chris. It's a treat to be here. We're going to have a great conversation. Chick-fil-A uh, it, it will be a big part of it. Steve's had a remarkable career and you know served as uh, chief marketing officer at Chick-fil-A for a lot of years, decades, and there's a lot to be learned from it. So... Without further ado, why don't we just start with um, kind of how you got to Chick-fil-A? I, I would say multiple God things is the headline. <laughs> yep. But the, the, the more recent part of the story is that I was director of marketing at Six Flags Over Georgia. First met the Chick-fil-A people because we were trying to convince them to, to build a Chick-fil-A restaurant inside the park. This was back in the late 70s. They were well under a 100 mall stores. And the whole premise was, here's a way for you to introduce the Chick-fil-A brand, get people to try your product. We found a location. We designed the store. We did the pro formas. Uh, they were not going to make money. It was designed <laughs> to build brand and trial. The park was going to make money. They chose not to do it. So roughly a year and a half later, 1980, summer of 1980, I'm sitting in my office, phone rings, and it's the COO, Jimmy Collins, who I dealt with on that potential deal in the park. And uh, Jimmy says, listen, uh, I don't know if you realize it, but we don't have a marketing department, and our operators really need help. And... Um, uh, I'm calling to see if you'd have an interest in talking to us. Your name keeps coming up. And Chris, I'm sitting there thinking, as he's sharing this, I'm thinking, well, I know you don't have a marketing department or you would have done that deal with me about a year and a half ago. <laughs> and uh, But they literally did not have a marketing team. And I had worked for eight years since graduate school, Texas Instruments and then Six Flags Parks for publicly held corporations. 
And in that time that I had a brief interaction with Chick-fil-A, I really became fascinated not only with their product, but with their people and their culture. So I told Jimmy, uh, sure, I'd love to talk. You know, I'd, I'd spent about a day, well, not about, I spent one day interviewing for my job with Six Flags. So I figured, what's three or four days checking this out? <laughs> right. <laughs> You've read the book. Yep. <laughs> um, that was August of 1980 when that phone call from Jimmy came. I'll rush ahead to December of 1980. I'm sitting in Truett Cathy's office, who's the founder of Chick-fil-A and the CEO, and I'm still interviewing. And it's well past three or four days. <laughs> I have interviewed anybody that's anybody within the Chick-fil-A family, plus I've spent time in Chick-fil-A restaurants talking to operators. I'm doing it all stealth. And this is an important story that gets to your question. And I look at Truett after about an hour, and I said, Truett, you know, I this is getting a little challenging. Uh, and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm interviewing with you stealth, and I really love the job I have at, at Six Flags. Love the people. I've learned a lot. But I I have a real interest in what, what you're potentially offering me, uh, but how do I how do I know what the ideal marketing candidate for you and am I the guy? And there's this long pause and he put down his sandwich on his coffee table and he looked at me and says, I have absolutely no idea. All I know is whatever it is, I don't want to do it. But I know Jimmy will check out whether you Jimmy and others will check out whether you're capable of doing the job. He said, I'm more interested in who you are. Because if we invite you to come here, I want to know that you and I, you and I can trust each other, have fun together. And, and I'm operating on the premise, you're never going to go anywhere else. Now, that alone was a paradigm buster right there, because I'd had four jobs in a period of eight years with two different companies. And here's a guy talking about hiring someone and expecting me never to leave. Well, obviously, the short of the story is I worked there as the director of marketing and then became the CMO, and I was there 35 years. And then I served three more years on their board. Uh, what I learned in that conversation about Truett um, was that if he trusted you, not only competency, but your character, what he was really saying when he said, I don't want to do it, is that he leaves you alone. He empowers you. And that's the headline on the kind of career I had. I had a I had a boss who was almost completely hands off. I did not have a perfect career. I did not not always make perfect decisions, as I share in my book. And yet, he never called me to his office one time to say, "Why did you do that?" or "You screwed up." He could have had grounds for it, but he never did. And the upshot of that is that. Um, I knew he had my back because he did trust me. And every time I went to him with a major decision, a major recommendation, his question was always the same. It, he didn't. He wanted to know that I had done the homework and we had the the numbers, the customer numbers, and the financial numbers and all that. But but he didn't want to be bored with all those details. He he basically always 
got to the heart of the question every time I went to him with a major decision. Is this going to make the business better or not? Is this going to improve our reputation or not? And if you feel it will, then I'm going to support you. And he supported me on some major brand business changing decisions at Chick-fil-A. Many of them after a lot of work, a lot of research, a lot of testing. But when it came down to asking him for a green light, it was really around his trust in me and my team that we were going to do the right thing. So I'll, I'll long answer your question, but it was uh, the interview process and that last interview with Truett really were a, uh, what would I say, a, uh, a vivid illustration of what the culture I was stepping into. That's an incredible way to kick this off. And I'm going to ask, I'm going to go a little deeper. So, you know, you kind of mentioned that the hiring process took four or five months. And especially in today's world, everybody wants it now. Um, and a lot of people would say, well, we don't have time to wait four or five months to hire people. We needed it yesterday. But I also don't think a lot of companies think we're hiring this person for a lifetime. What, what do you say to companies that might feel like we have to hire tomorrow and why, maybe not it's the wrong way, but why you should, why you would challenge them on that? I would, I would ask them uh, if you care about your culture and if, in fact, you know what kind of culture you have and desire to build, you're not going to rush. Most companies focus totally on competency, skill sets, because they, they think they're hiring someone to do a specific job. But if you think long-term, which I alluded to and you picked up on, if you think long-term, you're not, you're not hiring somebody for a specific skill set because if they're around 10, 20, 30, 40 years, uh, they're going to have to adapt and, and have other skills and other, they're going to have other roles in the business. Okay, so that said, what you're really hiring is for somebody's character and their what we call chemistry, their ability to work with others, be part of a team, develop their own fellowship, regardless of what their position, power, title was. And that's that's the evolution of what I saw happen at Chick-fil-A. There was this healthy tension and balance between competency, chemistry, and character. Uh, Truett told me in that last interview, because uh, we, we he unpacked some more what what he was saying to me. He said, listen, we don't rush this process because we're, we don't train culture, we hire it. And that's, that's what I would say to somebody. If you care at all about building a great culture, you're going to attract people to complement and build the DNA of your culture. And that takes time to discover. Uh, you, you've got to spend time with people. You've got to figure out how do they like to spend their time? What do they do? What are their hobbies? What do they like to read? Uh, what kind of family life do they have? Not, nothing out of bounds legally, but quality time uh, where you get to know somebody beyond their their functional skill set. Wow, that's powerful. And then the ability to kind of scale that culture, and 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 we'll talk about that. You know, one of the things that that you know I'll kind of set the tone that I think will be um, kind of the underlying current was what struck me was the purpose of Chick-fil-A. I'll read it. 
uh, to glorify God by being faithful steward of all that is entrusted to us and have a positive influence on all that come into contact with Chick-fil-A. Well, Chris, the, like most things in life, things that are really meaningful usually have a story behind them. And that purpose statement was written in the midst of the most significant crisis Chick-fil-A had up to that time had ever experienced. Uh, it was only my second year there, 1982, the financial crisis that started in the late 70s and spilled over into the early 80s, <laughs> much of which we might be seeing uh, developing in today. Price of, one of the implications of that crisis was the price of money, uh, interest rates went through the roof, double digit, 16, 17, 18%. And what happened was, all here we were, a business that was totally uh, committed to building restaurants and malls. Well, suddenly mall development stops. Uh, the previous two years, we built roughly 50, to 50 new stores per year. We were scheduled in 1982 to try to build another 52, 53. All of a sudden, development stops. Malls coming out of the ground stop. Retail sales drop over 30%. And for the first time ever, Chick-fil-A's got a cash flow problem. A significant sales decline and therefore a cash flow problem. And Truett comes to our young executive committee. The two veterans are Truett and Jimmy. They've been building this leadership team to help manage a growing business. And he comes into the meeting one day in the midst of this crisis and said, gentlemen, we got a financial crisis here, a cash flow problem. I have personally signed my assets, my personal assets to a loan to build the first office building. What are you going to do about it? And we, we, we all <laughs> sit there and look at each other and say, well, and the first thing you, you don't say it, but the first thing you think is sure we didn't create this problem, but whether we created the problem or not, it is a problem we must deal with. He's, he is personally uh, concerned about it because of his assets tied up in this loan. So anyway, that's the circumstance that took us to a three-day meeting up at Lake Lanier where we were going to tackle, all right, how do we deal with our cash flow challenge? And we did what most organizations would do. We froze staffing. We cut budgets. We... We knew we were going to build fewer stores. We said, okay, we're not going to build more than 18. And within a half day or so, we've done about all we can do uh, with our financial plans and our strategic plans uh, to try to help deal with that. One of the few things that stayed in the plan was for 1983 was rolling out of a new product, uh, this fun little finger food we called Chick-fil-A Nuggets. And uh, little did we know. But fortunately, we left that in the plan. It gave the operators a new tool uh, to build their business. But after a, less than a day, we're sitting there looking at each other, and is, is this all there is that we need to do to deal with this crisis? And Dan Cathy, Truett's oldest son, who is now chairman, uh, asked a great question. He said, you know, roughly half of all the operators and all the staff we have now have been with us less than two years. And I'm not sure 
and we probably need to talk about this. I'm not sure they really understand how we look at this issue versus maybe conventional businesses. Uh, and that's what led to a very lengthy, almost two-day conversation, Chris, where we picked Truett's brain, basically. Truett, why do you come to work in the morning? Well, what's really important to you? Why do, why do you see this business existing? Now, by this time, he's over 60. And what I what we heard was this story, basically, this is not my first rated rodeo when it comes to a crisis. I've had one restaurant I tried that was new beyond the original Dwarf House that didn't work, and another one that burned down. I've had two major health crises. Uh, I don't have a problem facing a crisis, and I don't even have a problem if the Lord should choose to take this business away. But my biggest concern, and again, I'm paraphrasing, my biggest concern is I see this business, the sandwich in the business, as a gift. And I want to make sure we steward this gift well. And that we steward this gift in a way that glorifies my Heavenly Father. And at the same time, blesses the people around Chick-fil-A and the people we serve. So I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in this just for making money or building wealth. I want to use the business to bless others. That was the context of the conversation that led to all kinds of phrases and, and, and words up on paper around the room. And after almost two days of work, we wrote the corporate purpose, which you read. And it has, not one word of it has changed. It still sits out in front on a bronze plaque in front of the, that original corporate building that he built with money he was afraid was going to wipe him out. <laughs> And uh, today they have almost 2,800 restaurant locations, and there's probably pushing 3,000 staff members that work at Chick-fil-A now and about 170,000 team members in restaurants run by roughly 24, 2,500 independent operators. Chick-fil-A, the next year, 1983, we, we announced the revised plans and we announced that corporate purpose to our staff and operators about two weeks later. We thought about it, we prayed over it, we came back and we, we announced it. And Chris, I'll never forget that when we did that, it was like this: the pressure left the room because people understood that Chirp uh, was not preoccupied with short-term profits. He was in this business for the long haul if the Lord chose to bless it. It was our responsibility to steward it well, people, talent, money. But why we were to steward it well was all very, also very clear, to glorify his, his Lord and have a positive influence on people who came in contact with the business. Not a focus on transaction, not a focus on quarterly returns, but a, a focus on building a healthy business. He was always more concerned about cash flow than he was monthly or quarterly earnings. That, that corporate purpose, what evolved over decades, was it, it wasn't just words. It became a litmus test on how we made decisions. Uh, it, made, it became a litmus test on how we, what we chose to invest in, uh, what initiatives got funded, which ones didn't. It became a litmus test for potential Chick-fil-A operators and staff members. Do I want to work with Chick-fil-A? 
because it's pretty clear what they stand for. Can I have alignment with that? We don't have to. Ha- we don't have to ask any hard questions around what's important to Chick Fil A or have any debate with operator or staff candidates. They know what's important to Chick Fil A, and they they can either feel good about walking into that culture, that environment, or they can walk away. And, and it actually, when you're when you're I'm going off a little here, but when oh, your God. why is when your why you exist is clear, I discovered everything else gets easier. It's easier to make decisions about how you allocate money, how you allocate talent, who you invite into the business. And it, it's also easier to empower people because they understand what, at the end of the day, what's important. So if I'm going to push this initiative or push this idea, does it will it will it line up with and complement that purpose? Yes or no? And so that organization over over the years has become an incredibly innovative organization. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons was the bedrock of their cultural foundation is clarity on why they exist and what's important. And if you do the right thing in alignment with that corporate purpose, a funny thing happens. You actually satisfy more people, make more people happy, help more operators and staff members thrive, and you grow. So it's not a business that, chase, that chases quarterly earnings uh, or building, building wealth, wealth for the ownership. It really is a business built around that purpose. There's so many things to unpack out of this. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, yes, there is. <laughs> and I'm going to do my best to, to do a few of them that some notes well, I took. Let me make one more comment before you do that. I'm sorry. Okay. I do consulting and speaking. Yep. And I'm amazed. One of the little things I like to do when I do a speech is ask people, um, okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. How many of you have a corporate purpose? Raise your hand. Interestingly, not all the hands go up because either they don't have one or they don't know what it is. Second question, how many of you feel like your corporate purpose drives the decisions being made in your organization? A lot fewer hands go up. And so my, my point in telling you that story is I'm, I think it's amazing that the high percentage of organizations where leaders are not, not very clear about why they exist. And even if they have a, a statement, even if they have words, a high percentage of them, it, it's not impacting decisions and behavior. And Chick-fil-A does. And you, if you understand the corporate purpose of Chick-fil-A and you understand that it really does impact decision-making and strategies and how people are dealt with, then you, you can begin to understand why they have a very different culture. When, when you listen to what you just said, at least for me, but I would assume for a lot of people, it seems uh, very obvious why, why companies would do that. And you would think, why doesn't everybody do that? So you have two hats now. You've lived it for 35 years, and now I assume that's part of your consulting. Why doesn't everybody have it? Is it because they're not taught it? Is there something fundamental? I think that's a great question. And I, 
I get it asked all the time. I, I think there's two or three reasons. One, and I'm an illustration of it, very few organizations attract key talent with the intent that they never leave. Um, and they don't build in the right incentive programs that that allow key leaders uh, to not only not want to leave culturally, I mean, it was a cultural fit for me, but also not want to leave financially. Now, Chick-fil-A is still a private company, and I'm not going to share uh, confidential information, but Truett and Jimmy figure out a way to, first of all, compensate Chick-fil-A operators where they're getting a direct percentage of the net profit of their store every month. So they're highly engaged in that business, highly engaged in attracting the right talent, taking care of every customer, because a big percentage of every net profit dollar is going into their profit, into their pocket. And the, a very similar principle was, a, was applied to leadership at Chick-fil-A, leadership talent, where we, we were tied to the performance of the restaurants, not with stock, but with how we were compensated. So my point is this, if, if you want to attract great talent, then you've got to figure out how to tie them into the performance, the success of the business. But that, here's my second point, that's very hard to do if all you're focused on is quarterly earnings and short-term results. And third, therefore, I think the other thing that undermines it is that most organizations don't have the benefit of long-term leadership. So their CEO and their CMO and their CFOs are turning over every three to five years. And so you not only lose institutional knowledge, you, you lose uh, cultural continuity with why you exist and what's important. And so the next CMO comes in or the next CEO comes in and they, they, go, they rewrite the purpose and they rewrite corporate values. And they reorganize. And too many organizations go through that cycle every three to five years. And so there's no, there's no solid foundation of clarity around why you exist, what's really important. And when you don't have that, then it's very difficult for people uh, to engage in the business with their whole being and <laughs> how do I say it? Uh, feel like the business is part of their, they're part of it. The business is part of their, I don't own any of Chick-fil-A. But I, as you can probably tell, I still feel a part of the Chick-fil-A business brand and, and the people that are still there. Most organizations just don't get to do that because of this short-term focus on earnings, short-term focus on careers, never really even attracting talent with the intention that you'll never go anywhere. So compensation systems are geared on more towards getting maximum results and leaving and going someplace else. And as opposed to maximizing your career, your personal growth, your professional growth, and your financial performance, at the same place, it is out of the it is out of the norm. I think those are all the all the reasons why Chick Fil A prospers, because it's based on the right reasons to exist, right values, 
and, and operational and financial systems that are aligned with a long-term perspective of the business. Therefore, a long-term perspective to the relationships in the business, staff and operators. I would assume it's probably easier to start building a culture like this if a business is just getting started. But what do you tell people that say, look, we've been around 15 years. We fully believe what you're saying and we want to bring it here. Does it start with an offsite? Does it start with a, you know, let's let's really talk about what the last 15 years gave us and, and where we want to go from here? How do you start inflicting change in a culture that, you know, whether it's employees or the owner, and maybe that's critical part of the, the puzzle is does the owner believe in this, not just the employees? How do you how do you bring that into an organization? Oh, terrific question. I have um, I have some active clients right now. They're all private owners. I don't particularly have an interest in consulting with publicly owned corporations for the reasons I just gave you. Mm -hmm. Short-term mindedness. Um, yeah, short-term turnover. I, I consult with men and women who own their own businesses. They're entrepreneurs. And they're all kind of what you described. They've all been in the business 10, 15 years. Uh, they read my book and they've, they've contacted me and said, this is really what I want in my business, but it's not what I have today. So the answer to your question is I start with I, no, no option. I start with a, a minimum of a two-day session in person where I seek to understand their business, seek to understand their culture, spend time with their leadership team, spend time in their business, whatever whatever the customer-facing nature of their business is. And after, I've, after we've done that, then I take them through a strategic planning model, which is basically a, a reflection of the evolution of the Chick-fil-A business and brand. And I start with purpose. And we, we start with, okay, why do you exist? That's the first key question. Second key question is, what are the what are the non-negotiable values here that you'll fall on a sword over? Um, things that you will absolutely expect in this business, um, and out, outside the box tops of those values is unacceptable. What are they? And most organizations have some or have some idea, but they've never really put them in writing. They've never articulated them. So under, the ref, refresh, understand their business, get deep into why they exist. And if they haven't documented, let's, let's get it, let's write it. What are the nine negotiable values? What then next, what is the core operating system? What is the core operating principle that allows you to potentially do something in the marketplace that's unique, that creates a blue ocean experience? And some of them had it, but most of them end up kind of wanting to gravitate to the principle of embedded in the Chick-fil-A operator relationship. How do, I, how do I create entrepreneur engagement and leadership store by store, site by site, much like Chick-fil-A does? 
because I don't I don't have that now. I've got managers or I've I've got field reps, whatever the case. So I I just take it from the ground level going forward. But the first step is get clarity on culture, purpose, and values. Um, and only after that, then you get into the issue of leadership, operating leadership that can, that can create a unique position in the market. Yep. All right. Continuing on this, can you give an example, uh, maybe just one that comes to mind where, you know, over your career, maybe there was a decision that was kind of on the line or or something that was, you know, not immediately thrown in the trash and the purpose statement kind of held true and maybe the decision didn't end up being made or did or was made because of the foundation? Well, I could give you several. Let's just take the area of menu items. It's interesting. I'll give you two. One was waffle fries. and The other one was the introduction of the first grilled chicken sandwich. Truett and Jimmy, neither one liked either of those ideas. What we did we spent a lot of time talking to customers and potential customers about what could make the Chick-fil-A menu better. We exposed them to waffle fries. We exposed them to charcoal chicken in small groups, then in test stores. We did a lot of research. And we, of course, eventually got around to sales and financial performance. But the real turning point for both of those guys was when the customer, the voice of the customer was so positive. It got to the issue, it really dealt with the, with the whole issue, how do you have a positive influence on more people? And in the case of the grilled chicken, the Chick-fil-A brand was not perceived to be healthy or as healthy as it could be. And if you want to have positive influence and you're in the chicken business, there's got to be a way to do that. And the evolution of grilled chicken was not just a grilled chicken sandwich, but it became grilled chicken salads wraps it's now my goodness it's the the grilled chicken category is probably over 20 percent of their sales but the driving force of truett saying yes was not the financial performance of the test it was the voice of the customer saying this 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 is this makes chick-fil-a better i like chick-fil-a better because of this now you might say well that's just fundamental marketing research but but it's all in the context of a company that said we want to have a positive influence on everybody who comes in contact with Chick-fil-A. The decision to get in college football was, I guess you would say, put over the edge. It wasn't, it wasn't numerical in terms of some sort of test results. It was the overwhelming customer data that said a high, high percentage of our customer base love college football. How could we go into that space and make their college football experience even better? Uh, not only at games, but on university campuses. It led to eventually building uh, license, license locations on, on college campuses around America. There's now over 400 of them. Did it build sales? Yes. But the, the, real, the real point of con conviction for Truett and 1997, when we decided to do the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl for the first time, was the opportunity to go into the Georgia Dome and help people have a better time, just have a better experience. Um, 
with food, with games, with with interactive stuff in the, during the ball game, the way we treated teams, coaches, alumni, a, a relational experience brand as opposed to a brand that was just focused on transactions. That's the that's the difference. And obviously, every decision we made when when it came to inviting someone to be a Chick Fil A operator or staff member was fundamentally came down to this question. If we invite, could I see my child or grandchildren working with this person? Well, that's that's the whole issue of positive influence on everyone we come in contact with. But even as I interviewed candidates for my staff, that was the back of my mind all the time. Would I want my daughter or son or my future grandchildren working with this individual. Now you can't answer that question until you, as I alluded to earlier, until you've spent some quality time with that person. But it's amazing how you, if you spend enough time with them, you're able to answer that question, and the answer is either yes or no. No, I don't want my, I don't know, I don't want my daughter working for this person. And you had decision makers throughout the organization uh, asking that same question when it came to selecting an an operator for a restaurant or a staff member uh, to to come into the home office because it was an organization focused on positive relational influence, not just doing work. It's one thing to hire somebody to do a job. It's somebody else to it's something else and hire someone to have a career that's focused on building relationships and positive influence. A lot of this was set in the 80s. Is there something different about today's culture and today's world that would make these things um, harder to achieve? Or do you think, I look at the world and I listen to what you're saying and I think we need this more than ever. It actually seems more obvious than ever, uh, at least to somebody like me. Um, where people have become a lot more individualized, not as much team-oriented, short-term natured. I don't even know what I'm asking you other than... So I, I, think the, I think the real practical implication of what you're asking, Chris, is great organizations, and we can sit here and name some great brands, and one of the common aspects of all of them is they're great at innovation. And it's certainly true at Chick-fil-A. And you cannot have great innovation if you don't have great teamwork. And you've got to have great teamwork not only within a department, but cross-functionally. Any Chick-fil-A experience, whether it's a sandwich or a drive-thru experience um, or an event, doesn't matter. Any Chick-fil-A brand experience is a result of a, a linear process that crossed multiple functional skills to deliver that experience. And that's true at any organization. So the point of the point of answering your question is I think these what I've described is even more important because you you need people that can work together. It's hard to have great teamwork if people are only concerned about me as opposed to being involved in a a team process that wants to actually improve people's lives in the marketplace. I don't care whether it's Chick-fil-A or Apple. 
it's teamwork requires people that are selfless. And we have a very selfish culture right now. And so to answer your question, I think it's harder to attract the right talent that can not just do a functional job, but think and behave the way I just described. It takes more work in the, in the interviewing and the vetting process to identify people that are not just skilled, but selfless. But I think it's needed more than ever. Can selfless be taught and in people that you interviewed or interacted with over time and, and really even taking this back to, to Jesus, who he didn't hang out with the kings and the, and the lords. He hung out with the beggars and the sinners. Have you, is it possible to teach selfless people to be selfless? And were there times where you interviewed someone and thought they're not there yet, but they're close and Chick-fil-A can get them there? Yes. The answer is yes. Yes. I think it can be taught. Um, it helps if they're, if you see a teachable spirit, uh, if you see someone that has enough identity with your corporate culture and your corporate values that, okay, they're, they're bent, their, their values are bent towards us. Their DNA is bent towards us. Uh, when it comes to the issue of selfish selflessness, I think we can teach them. We, we can help them get better at that. Trust me, when I joined Chick-fil-A, I was not selfless. I was driven on building transactions, building my career, building short-term results. I mean, in some degree, that's the nature of the theme park business. But the irony is the theme park business at its best is relational. <laughs> it's an experience with people. And um, so, yes, I think it can be taught if somebody's got, if somebody demonstrates there's a, a, values, DNA, a values DNA there that allows them to have a teachable spirit. Um, when people see, when people get to be part of teams that are doing great innovative work, it can't happen without selflessness through that team, within that team. It's contagious. I mean, it was, you mentioned Christ. It, it certainly became contagious with his disciples. And uh, what they didn't learn from him, they certainly, they certainly got it when the Holy Spirit came to their lives. I mean, one of the, you, you know, if you've studied the scripture at all, you know, one of the, there's many fruits of the Spirit, and one of them is long suffering and patience and kindness. Well, those are virtues of selflessness. So obviously, it can be caught, it can be learned, you know, even through the scripture, it can be trans, it can be transformative. Yeah, the more selfless you are, the, the, the culture today seems to be fascinated with wanting to be happy, even though our default setting is more like suffering rather than being happy. But uh, it just so turns out the more selfless you are, the happy you are, and the more selfish you are, the more unhappy you are. And the more selfless you are, the more other people want to be around you. People don't want to hang around people that are self-centered and selfish. I'm relatively young in my career, uh, but my worst moments, even as I reflect um, in the things that I hope to change or grow upon as I go forward, happen to be just moments where it was short-term natured. It was very much about me. It was very much about the dollar. Um, 
and and the world gives us that. I mean, especially today, that is what is being fed now with social media and cell phones and everything else. Um, it's harder to escape that than maybe it once was. But to me, it's why it is also so obvious that um, there is a better answer. It, it's just uh, having a different outlook. One thing you said in some of your writings that I wrote down was, and it's kind of along the lines we've been talking about, is turnover is the number one inner uh, number one enemy of cultural sustainability. What I took from that was, if the team is constantly coming and going, how can you have a linear message that that kind of gets better over time? Relationships that get better. I just thought it was a powerful statement. You want to add on to that? Well, it's it's some people would say that's institutional knowledge, uh, but institutional knowledge is is much deeper than just tactics and strategies and programs. It's the 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 real strength of institutional knowledge. If people is if people have a clarity around why they exist and what's important here, because if you understand why you exist and what's really important here, decision making is much much easier faster, more efficient, dollars get better spent, people's time doesn't get, doesn't get wasted as much. But if you got a lot of turnover, that institutional knowledge, not just of tactics and strategies, but why you exist and what's important, gets, gets denigrated. And um, I don't know any way, I don't know any other way to say it. Turnover just kills building and sustaining culture it does and um so if you're growing fast i mean this is another side of it if you're growing fast and you don't properly uh, vet talent to make sure there's a cultural dna fit and if you don't properly uh, inculcate and educate and develop people about um not just talking about what's important here, but demonstrating it through decision-making and behaviors and, and particularly with leaders, then you can, lose, you can lose the culture if you grow too fast and you don't do those things. I wanna kind of pivot just a little bit. Um, this is just amazing. And um, a lot of kind of the, the, the uh, discussion and, and what I've learned even in the last week reading your book is, is emotional over transactional. And so we'll kind of keep moving there, but I think there's just some fun things that we need to discuss that um, all of our listeners that know Chick-fil-A would uh, love to hear more about. So I want to start with the cows. <laughs> this is a chicken right. business. Uh, if you're, if you're, your book has a cow on the front of it. It's called Covert Cows and Chick-fil-A. How did the cows come to be and, and, and why has that been such a special thing? Yeah. Well, we didn't really need, because we We'd grown up initially in the mall business. We didn't need traditional advertising. The, the mall was the medium. So we're doing stuff in the, in the stores and in the mall lease lines and sampling and stuff like that. And it wasn't until 1986 that we built the first store on the street. And it wasn't until the mid-90s that we had enough stores on the street that we really even needed to entertain using advertising to build awareness for the brand and remind people that we're an alternative to all those other fast food brands out there. We had been a captured audience brand, now we're a destination brand. Well, that means you really better work at building not just awareness, but what it, the brand stands for. 
So it wasn't until 96 that we said, all right, we got to go out and do an official agency search and we got to find somebody that can help position us in the marketplace. But we don't have a lot of money to spend. We can't use the traditional formula that most of these brands use where they accrue a bunch of money from the stores and they buy TV and radio and all that kind of stuff. And the short of the story, Chris, is we got our agency search narrowed down to three agencies, and we selected the Richards Group out of Dallas, Texas. Stan Richards was the principal, uh, heavily involved in the business. And we select them because they had a pedigree of great creative. Um, Motel 6, Tombow Debt, Ram Trucks, Home Depot, Fruit of the Loom Guys, um, the, the beach campaign for um, Corona. Corona. Yeah, yeah. The beach campaign for Corona. And uh, so they won the account. And Stan's promise to us was you won't see any creative that I've not personally approved. And he lived up to that promise. Uh, I worked with him for 22 years. He, he, he honored that promise. Well, one of their early recommendations from them was you, you can't play in the electronic medium space. You don't have enough storage. You don't have enough money. Uh, we think you ought to utilize billboards, but not to tell people where to turn or what something costs, but to actually build the brand and just do it in the, the, foot, the geographic footprint where you have stores. Uh, so they brought in recommendations using 3D technology. Um, I won't take you through all the, the, the early stuff. It's in the book. But about nine months into our relationship, one of the billboard ideas, they threw at us in a creative presentation with these two cows, one on the, sitting on top of the other one, painting, eat more chicken. And I lost it. I just, I loved it. Um, funny. Uh, their whole premise was um, you, we could put, a picture of your sandwich on the billboard, but we could change the logo to three or four different brands and nobody would know the difference. And they were right. So why don't we use your advertising like you work at relationships in the restaurants? Why don't we use your advertising to build a relationship through humor? Um, and what evolved from that was obviously something bigger than one billboard idea. It, it was so popular when it went up it, we went to we went back to them in a matter of weeks and said, "Look, we think you got an idea here that's bigger than just one board. We're getting incredible feedback from it. It's the only advertising we've ever done that anybody remembers. Breaking through the clutter, and we can afford to do it. So that that led to the cows becoming the the foundation of a, a campaign. And I worked with them for 22 years on the Eat More Chicken campaign." Um, but one, one of the offshoots of the campaign was it underlined a principle that we adopted, which we called renegade marketing. And the principle was we won't, we don't want to do anything in the, in the marketing or the brand arena that looks or smells like other fast food brands. We don't want to introduce products that aren't uniquely Chick-fil-A. We don't want to do advertising that's not uniquely Chick-fil-A. We don't want to do events that don't have a unique Chick-fil-A perspective and, and footprint to it and characteristics to it. And so over time, the evolution was 
Therefore, how do we really evolve with leveraging Chick-fil-A food, not only on the menu, but how we market with it? How do we leverage the cows? Uh, how do we leverage the operator model to build relationships in the community? And how do, how do we uh, uh, build a, a hospitality model, which came later, that is completely a paradigm buster in the context of other fast food? And so the cows were the precursor of a marketing philosophy was whatever the other guys do, if, we, if we're looking at anything that even re remotely resembles that, we don't want to do that. We'll, we'll go 180 from that. And the cows were the, the proving ground that you could do something to build a fast food brand without focusing on food and price. And uh, it, it still works. Uh, even even some of the advertising Chick-fil-A does today that does not feature the cows is still relationally, emotionally engaging, engaging focused. It's not food or price. And um, the cows put us on the, in terms of marketing visibility, the cows put Chick-fil-A on the map. There's no doubt about it. And then the biggest platform we gave them beyond billboards was college football. And as our involvement with college football evolved, not only with the bowl, but with ESPN, CBS, and then the college football playoff, uh, and then the college football hall of fame, uh, the cows were the, they were on, they were on the bow. They were the, they were the, the face of the brand um, as we expanded into the college football arena. It's legendary. And for anybody listening, if you don't think a cow standing up is funny or something to pay attention to, <laughs> I don't know how you couldn't. Um, one of the, the key tenants of Chick-fil-A, and, and we've already uh, hit on it several times in this conversation, is the operator model, which is fascinating. And, and you know, for anybody that's going to read the book, read the book and it goes deeper. But Let's just kind of explain why the operator model came to be. And then I want you to touch a little bit on um, the owners of these Chick-fil-A restaurants and why they are so impactful to driving the business forward. It's much different than the rest of the fast food industry. Well, you're talking about, in my opinion, uh, to use Jim Collins. I think it's, it's either Jim Collins or Tom Peters, but I know the, the phrase is right. They are the flywheel of the Chick-fil-A business. Jim Collins. They they are the operational flywheel. I don't know that Jimmy and Truett realized when they created it. Uh, they created that model back in 1967. Truett opened his first Chick Fil A restaurant in a mall in Atlanta. Uh, he then short and it did very well. And he there then shortly thereafter opened another one down in Savannah at Oglethorpe Mall. And Jimmy at that point. Um, was a con restaurant consultant who helped Truett design those stores. Those two stores got off to a good start, but he had a conventional manager model in there. And Jimmy was also um, working on design for two more stores somewhere in the Carolinas. He came into Truett's office one day after several revisions to the, the, the design and 
true, I've got these designs for these two new stores, and Truett said, I don't want to do them. And Jimmy was shocked. And he said, well, what do you mean you don't want to do them? He says, I, I don't need the headaches. I, I don't need these managers calling me with their questions and their problems. I, I'm not, I, I'm making a great living with the Dwarf House and these and the Chick-fil-A restaurant right here in Greenbrier Mall in Atlanta. I don't, I don't need a chain of restaurants. Now, Jimmy realized the truth potentially it's something pretty solid based upon the first two restaurants. I don't know the dynamics of how this conversation went, Chris. I, I wasn't there. But obviously, these two guys figured out how to redesign the relationship and shift from a manager mentality to an independent entrepreneur mentality. And as Jimmy used to describe it, Truett figured, and I don't know that Truett figured it out, I think Jimmy had a lot to do with it, but Truett figured out how to recreate himself in terms of mindset. So the independent operator, um, here's how it works. Chick-fil-A finds the store location, they build the restaurant, they equip the restaurant. Chick-fil-A also finds and selects the independent contractor. Now, legally, they're a franchisee, but they're not an equity franchisee. They have no equity in the restaurant. If you're selected to be a Chick-fil-A operator, you pay a percentage off the top for the use of the brand and all the services to support the brand. After all the expenses running through your P&L, including talent, the talent, the people are your responsibility. After all your expenses, whatever your net operating profit is, you're going to split that with Chick-fil-A. Half is yours, half is theirs. Um, your income is that half net operating profit. Chick-fil-A's revenue stream is that the other half net and the percentage off the top, the brain royalty. That deal, other than adjusting a guaranteed base draw so people could eat <laughs> in, their, in their startup years, um, that deal has not changed. It's exactly the same arrangement. Um, today, when I joined Chick-fil-A, the average operator was making about $40,000 a year. An operator making 70, 80, 100 grand was by far the exception. Uh, I'm not at liberty to tell you how much operators make today, but it's, 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 a, it's an increase. It's a double-fold increase times... Uh, exponential <laughs> they are they are doing incredibly well and um one of the things that always fascinated me working with Truett and his family is i never heard anybody including Truett, complain that operators were making too much money and they're making a lot of money but Truett figured out if they're more successful i'm more successful I've got a better leader in the restaurant making important decisions daily. They have to be in the restaurant. They cannot be passive ownership. They have to be in, engaged in the business. They're attracting the talent, developing the talent. They're helping to build the business, the brand, attract sales. Uh, they're, they're dealing with community relationships that are important to them, not only suppliers, but partnerships. Um, it's an unbelievable model. Operator turnover is less than 3% a year. And 
um, they they really are the face of the brand in the community. Um, Truett didn't care. He really didn't care if anybody knew who the chairman was. He was more interested with people in in communities where there was a Chick-fil-A, whether they knew who the operator was. He used to say, I expect you to be the mall of the mall and the mayor of the mall or the mayor of your community. And um, so the, the as a result, operationally, everything that makes Chick-fil-A hum, operational excellence, hospitality, and local marketing funnels through that, that independent leader. And um, it creates um, leadership horsepower that no other brand in that space has or can have. People ask me, why don't other people copy it? Well, it's too generous. It's too generous. There is no publicly owned company that would ever adopt that model. So they they have a very unique place in the marketplace. Truett, you know, was a firm believer in building trust in relationships. And the fact that the deal has never changed is not just telling you that it was ingenious, but operators know they can trust it. Um, so you're into the you're into the fifth, um, almost the sixth, but you're into the fifth decade, almost the sixth decade of that deal never changing. I'm in my third decade as a customer, and and I have worn the the one out down the street from me. Yeah. Um, in the I think it, it was something like sixty thousand people applied to own a franchise every year, or something of that nature. I'm going to. I'm going to assume where we started this conversation, where it took you five months to get your original job, that becoming a selected operator, I don't know if it takes more time probably, but it is a similar process where you guys are looking for people that you're going to work with forever. It's not an understatement that it would be a year or more. If you're even, if you're even a final candidate. And if you are a final candidate, you may not actually secure a restaurant location for two years. And are those people, uh, is this a rumor, but are those, are most of the people applying already working in a store somewhere and have been very familiar with the culture? Right now, roughly half of them are. And the other half coming, coming off the street. And that, that, that seems a very healthy balance. Yeah. Why? Well, I think it, it you get the perspective of outsiders with other, other, not only skill sets, but other experiences, whether it's businesses or military or teachers or whatever. And then you also have these um, young men and women who literally have grown up in the business and been had leaders, manager leadership roles under an operator, um, some of them for 10, 10, 15 years before they became a serious operator candidate. So you've got you got local knowledge, but you also have this the healthy tension and benefit of outside knowledge. We're going to move to my pleasure in a second, but one more question on this, um, and I think this funnels from a lot of Truett's early learnings of being around the restaurant. But uh, even before we met or I read the book, I used to always say, "Why does Chick Fil A only let their operators own one, maybe two of these at most?" Whereas in McDonald's and several others you might talk to a somebody that owns 10 mcdonald's 
And then when I read the book, I realized how important it was that they actually only own one or two. There's reasons behind that. Will you share just a little more about why? Well, I think the core philosophy was true. used to say the taste of the roast effect is affected by the presence of the host. And his, his presence in the dwarf house for almost 30 years before he even created Chick-fil-A uh, rooted him in a philosophy of engaging not only with his team members and knowing them and supporting them, but also engaging personally with customers. He wanted people that, as I said earlier, basically behaved like him. They were in the restaurants. They're interacting with customers. They're interacting in their community. They're personally engaged in selecting and developing their own talent, uh, their teams. And he was willing to have a generous deal where you could have one restaurant and have a very uh, good income and have a platform for not only business, but quite frankly, a platform for ministry and influence in the community. And, and he, he didn't even really, he pushed back on two restaurants. But uh, in order to serve customers better, there came a point when you had to have some stores get close together where there was cannibalization. And that actually became a, a good thing in the sense that the opportunity to have a second store was heavily influenced by how well you were leading and managing the one you already had. So the opportunity for a second unit became a catalyst for improved performance uh, around customer experiences and P&L management and team member development. But two's about it. it. These guys are doing unbelievable volumes that are involved in the business average operators probably got 120 to 130 employees, team members. They know them. Uh, they want them to grow. They want them to develop. Um, and <laughs> if you got two stores, then you might have 250 employees. And Truett understand, understood that's, that's a pretty big family to take care of. Um, and he wanted somebody in the business that would look at those team members as family uh, and look at customers as friends, uh, not just a transaction. So that's that's a long answer to your question, but it, it really grew out of him trying to have leadership in every restaurant that would behave the same way he did. Yeah, that's incredible. All right, you've been very generous with your time, but we're going to we're going to bring it home with something that I think we can all rally around uh besides the waffle fries. And I have to admit, I'm not a Chick-fil-A sauce guy. I'm a barbecue sauce guy at Chick-fil-A, which might catch you by surprise, but No, no, it's very popular. Every time I go to Chick-fil-A in the back of my head, I I I don't know if if I'm proud to say this or if I should be ashamed. In the back of my head, I go I'm going to catch one employee that doesn't say my pleasure when I say thank you to them. And I have to honestly admit, in three decades of going to Chick-fil-A, never one single time have they even slipped up and said, oops, I meant to say my pleasure. So I want to ask how this started, but then I kind of want to ask just a little deeper, how is this trained and ingrained? And I ask even the youngest people at the windows, I say, how do you learn this? And they just kind of, it's almost like they smile and wink at me. Nobody's ever actually given me an answer. Um, 
But even the teenagers that are in high school that are just getting started, they just never fumble it. And so how did it come to be and how did you ingrain this at scale that permeates the organization and might be one of the core tenants that Chick-fil-A will always be known for? Well, that journey kind of started in the late 90s. Um, we had been spending the, the first 10 years or so of freestanding restaurants. We'd spend a lot of focus on getting better at operational systems and procedures and customer measurement to raise the bar on operational performance, foods, speed of service, accuracy, cleanliness, et cetera. But there was an opportunity, okay, if we want to be an out-of-the-box blue ocean brand that doesn't look and smell like other fast foods, we're not, we're not there yet. We were the best of a bad lot. Just to be quite frank, Truett, again, was the catalyst. He had spent some time um, on a trip in a Ritz-Carlton. He had interacted with several people in the rest in the hotel he was in, and every time he said thank you, he'd always they would look at him and smile and say, "My pleasure." So he came back. I'm shortening the story. He came back and told that story on a national Chick Fil A seminar to all the operators and staff, and said, "I'd like to ask you when you go back to your restaurants, teach all your team members. So that somebody says thank you, say my pleasure back." Because you can't say it without eye contact and without smiling, and it changes your body language. And just, just trust me, do it. Well, it may sound simple, but there was pushback because operators' immediate reaction was, "We're, we're dying here, just trying to keep up with transactions and get people's orders processed as quick as we can. We don't have time for warm fuzzies." <laughs> I mean, really, the majority of them felt that way. That was their gut reaction. All right, so I'll jump forward. The next year, he came back to the meeting, asked for it again. The third year, he came back to the meeting, he asked for it again. And Dan Cathy and myself and a few others decided, you know what? Truett is, he's, duh, he's telling us, here's the next step of the Chick-fil-A brand the next evolution of the brand. How do you integrate? Um, uh, and we had studied, we'd already begun studying not only Ritz, but Danny Meyer restaurants. I don't know if you've heard of him out of New York. And we learned an interesting thing from Danny. His, he learned, he, he, he drove into us, service is how you deliver the meal. Hospitality is how you add value to the meal. Well, we were pretty good at service, delivering the meal. But we were we were not doing anything different to distinguish us from everybody else in our space around the experience beyond the meal. So I'll shorten the story. We benchmarked companies that had great reputation in hospitality. I won't name them all. We visited their their locations. We spent time with leaders. We spent time talking to customers and focus groups. If you were to experience these kind of behaviors in Chick-fil-A, what would you think? We developed a laundry list of, of behaviors, my pleasure being one of them, that customers seem to say, that that would add a lot to my experience. I like that. I would, I would not expect that from fast food restaurant, even Chick-fil-A. And that's where things like flowers on the table, my pleasure, re refreshing dr drinks without being axed, carrying large orders to the table, 
uh, bagging long, large orders and, and carrying it to the cars for people, umbrellas uh, service when it's raining, eventually person-to-person ordering in the drive-through. It's where all that came from was through listening to customers. And so now to your question is how do you integrate that into what was then 50,000 team members and now 170,000? Uh, we had to develop training that was just as specific as how you make a Chick-fil-A sandwich with two pickles. These are the behaviors that we expect at these at these points of interaction with customers at the counter, in the dining room, in the drive-through, as you roam around the, the, the dining room uh, checking people's experience. These are the behaviors that should occur at these places in the interaction. And we 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 develop video modules to show how they not what they what they sound like and look like, how to do them gracefully without interfering with people's experience. We then develop customer research where we would go into restaurants and they still do to measure whether those behaviors are being lived out using mystery shoppers who are customers who basically document whether that's what happened in their experience in the restaurant. And (laughs) at the end of the day, it became so ingrained in the culture of, of with the operators and the training process. This is, this is what we do at Chick-fil-A. This is how we make sandwiches, how we make waffle fries. This is how we, this is how we interact with the customer at the counter. This is how we interact with them in the dining room. This is how we interact with them in the drive-through. It it all is part of the built-in processes and and measurements that that became the norm. And it, it's it's no different than anything else, Chris. You do something enough, and it becomes a habit. When you do the right things enough, and they become a habit. They become contagious, and all of a sudden you realize you're out of you're out of the mainstream if you don't do them. Yeah, and that's that's been the evolution. But it all started uh, with churches asking people to say "my pleasure." By the way, it took seven years to develop the, the 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 process, the systems, the behaviors, the measurement, the training, and rolling it out. Um, they're probably now, and it, and it keeps getting revised. They're probably now in the the fourth or fifth fifth version of the hospitality model, but it's a very specific model. As I said, no different than how you make waffle fries the right, right way. This is the right way to interact with somebody in the drive through or at the counter or to refresh their beverage, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard work, by the way. It's harder than making the food. Oh, I don't doubt it. Um, yeah, Chick-fil-A is just a, it's even the last two weeks kind of being entrenched in it. It makes a lot more sense, but uh, it really is a remarkable company. I, I was going to share with you. I wrote a tweet probably a year ago um, that got a lot of traction and it, and it was very simple. It said, I think one of the best things I could do for my kids in high school is have them work at Chick-fil-A. And that was after leaving uh, the drive through one day where I was in kind of a, you know, just a pissy mood. And the person at the uh, ended up chatting with the uh, person at the window and just kind of changed my day around it. It was it was a quick way to realize that whatever I was dealing with was probably not as big. So 
Well, Truett, part of Truett's role on this was personalizing it. And one of his favorite things he would say to operators and even team members when he went into stores was, uh, do you know who needs encouragement? And, you know, people look at him and he said, well, let me tell you who needs encouragement. If you're breathing, you need encouragement. <laughs> look in the mirror. You need encouragement. Now, given our purpose of having a positive influence on all who come in contact with Chick-fil-A, let's see if every time somebody enters a Chick-fil-A or goes through a drive through or even engages with us at a ball game, they feel encouraged. They feel valued. And I, I would say it really reflected um, his incredible, um, I don't want to blow people away here, but I think his incredible understanding of the biblical principle of grace. He had experienced grace through Christ, and he wanted people to experience grace, not by quoting a Bible verse, but how they were treated. And I, I, I really think the hallmark of Chick-fil-A hospitality is graciousness. That is a perfect way to bring an incredible conversation uh, to a close. That was... <laughs> Thank you. I'm glad. That was, that was awesome. Steve, this was incredible. Um, I needed this uh, as much as maybe the listeners will need this. But if it was just for me, I, I feel uh, indebted to you for this conversation. You're more than welcome, Chris. I'm glad we could do it. Everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.